0: Hey, CNFers. Neil Bascom has a new newsletter out called Work, Craft, Life.
1: You know, I've always thought that the story dictates the style.
0: Was that a little aggressive? I'm sorry. It, does, it doesn't matter. I'm just real excited. Neil is the author of several books. He was on the podcast two years ago. To talk about faster, how a Jewish driver, an American heiress, and a legendary car beat Hitler's best. His most recent book is Red Mutiny, Freedom, Revolution, and Revenge on the Battleship Potemkin. I didn't even know about this last book. And I would have had him on earlier to talk about it. But we'll, we'll blame his publicist. Here, here's some advice, kids. Always blame the publicist. Oh, by the way, this is the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan o'Meara. How's it going? so yes, this was a fun one as we talk about Neil's book burnout, which led to this newsletter project of his. it's a great way of he' it's a great creative leap, something risky he hasn't done in nearly two decades since he started writing narrative nonfiction it's giving him the the beginners feels and the the sense of dancing with the fear of doing something new. Now I'm a newsletter junkie, as you know, and I can't recommend Neil's enough. At first I thought it was just going to be Neil talking about his own craft, his own writing and life, which would have been just fine by me. And the first issue dealt with his research and organization. Great stuff. Go check that out. But the main intent is to profile everyday people and how they go about the craft of their jobs, their everyday jobs be they a chef, an abstract artist, an ER doctor or for Sunday June 5th, which Neil is super excited about, a profile of a first time war reporter if Humans of New York meets Studs Terkel and then it, it gets translated through Neil's incredible taste and skill as a writer and storyteller, you can learn more about Neil at Neil Bascom. Dot com That's Neil, N-E-A-L. And subscribe to his newsletter at workcraftlife.substack.com. Uh, show notes for this and every other podcast are at hey And you can su- subscribe to my newsletter. Up to 11, rage against the algorithm. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Well, maybe Neil's, but aside from Neil's, can't beat it. That's the thing with newsletters. They're like the rebel alliance, and social media is the empire. You don't think for a second that Emperor Palpatine has a dark side algorithm working the knobs of the invisible force. Think about it, kids. Think about it. Newsletters are a slow go it's a hard, It's so hard to build an audience, especially if you don't have like a baked in audience. It's really and it's even harder to keep an audience because we're bombarded with so much email. But if you can do it, give me 10 email subscribers to 100 social media followers 8 days a week. Yeah, it's a thing. You are effectively unplugged from the algorithmic matrix with a permission-based asset from people, true fans, who are enrolled in your journey and elected to receive your information. Don't violate that trust. Think value, value, value. And my parting shot at the end of this Humble Podcast. I'll share a little bit of newsletter etiquette. Listen, I have far from a big newsletter audience. It's growing very, very little, but it's so important to me. It is tiny, but it grows like an oak tree, which is to say, very, very slowly. And it seems like when you lose subscribers, you you lose three, you you gain three, or you gain three and then you lose five. It It really, that's the slog of it, and it's demoralizing. But it's okay. We're all going to get there one of these days. Lastly, consider heading over to patreon.com slash Pod to support the show with a few dollar bills. And if slipping a few bucks our way is a bridge too far, leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way towards validating the podcast for the wayward CNFer. And it's free. It just costs you a couple minutes of your time. So what do you say? What do you say we just get into it with Neil Bascom here about this newsletter jam, okay? (laughs) Let's do it, riff. Nice. Well, I'm so uh, so pleased to find out that you started this uh, started this newsletter about you know work, craft, and life, and it's a it's a really. It's a really cool topic and uh, and an idea behind it, and i was hoping to maybe get a get a sense of what the motivation was for you to start this uh, start this newsletter. As newsletters are kind of like the new blogs in a, in a sense, so I what, right, it's, it's the
1: latest wave, right? Yeah, um, and I, and I'm so usually so far behind the wave that by the time I I catch it, it's you know it's on shore and too late. <laughs> so I feel like. It, this, this may be one where I'm catching it perhaps at the right time. And yeah, so I mean, the genesis of, of Warcraft life is, is I think, two, two, two fundamental things. First is I've sort of always been fascinated, just utterly fascinated by like what people do. Like whenever I'm at a, at a party or out socially or meeting people, like what they do in their daily lives, not just, Oh, I'm a lawyer or, Oh, I'm a carpenter, but like, what do you actually do? Mm -hmm. Like, what is your craft? How are you good at your job? How are you bad at your job? Now I don't always ask, ask those questions, but like, I'm always very curious about people's work. And for a long time, I've been thinking of different ways to pursue that interest and have never really found the outlet that's, that made sense. Like, for instance, i I've been thinking for a while about doing a book on, on building a house like and following that over the course of a year or two and getting to know the carpenters and the plumbers and the demolition people, S- simply because I'm so interested in what those individuals do, how they got there, how they became... Uh, how they got into those professions, but it that seemed very limited to me. I wanted to do the sort of broad scope from literally everything. I mean the 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 reservoir of stories and crafts and jobs is, is is limitless. And so you know, so the primary reason or one of the two reasons of doing this newsletter was to just satisfy this curiosity and this fascination and. Bring it to readers, and the second thing is, you know, from the point of view of my books and my my author career, you know, I've I've been doing I've been writing books almost exclusively for 22 years uh, since I was you know 29 30 years old, and I've written you know almost so many books that I can't remember how many books I've written, but something like 14 or 15. And mm-hmm. I got to a place after this latest book, which um, about Gandhi and his salt March in 1930, which I wrapped up and finished. And, and I started thinking about my next book and coming up with ideas. And some of them were, were what I thought were quite good ideas saleable ideas. And I just didn't want to do it. Mm. And I couldn't sort of, you know, rile myself up and I, trying to figure out what that is about. And I think it's, you know, at this particular stage, I'm not challenged by doing another narrative nonfiction book, either haven't found the idea or, or I need a break in a way. And so this uh, work craft life is, is such a different kind of work that I've been doing. It's immediate. I'm interviewing people, I'm publishing, you know, a week later, I'm taking photographs, I'm taking video, I'm doing audio. and it's just all these skills which I'm learning and I feel challenged by the interview process and the format and you know these three to five thousand word profiles, and how to write them. and so you know this is a long answer to say, you know, one, it's a fascination of mine that I'm I'm satisfying. And two, I'm finding a new way to sort of challenge myself as, as a writer and as a journalist and I'm very excited about
0: it. Well, there's a great quote from Emilio, uh, an abstract artist that you, that you profiled, where he said, I found that excitement again, but it's also scary. It's my career. I don't plan on doing anything else for a living. This is it. You have to take the chance. And that was him like talking about a slightly art, a different artistic pivot. And that struck me as something that you're doing here, an artistic pivot that appears to be putting that fuel back in your tank.
1: Exactly. I mean, Emilio and I I spent time, he's an abstract artist. Uh, he lives in in, in Bushwick, uh, Brooklyn. And, you know, he had quite a six, successful career uh, doing a particular process of art. And very similar to me, he got kind of tired of, of it uh, and found that it didn't, as he, as he said, sort of provide the escape that art had always had for him and so when we were talking it was it was very, very much sort of two comrades <laughs> and, you know at the same points in their in their careers trying to explore something else and you know the fears that are involved with that the excitement that's involved with that um and the learning that goes with that and and all those things are are the same for me as they are for for Amelia
0: yeah and when you were let, let's say before, you know, book burnout and just tired of the, 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 (laughs) the, the chain smoking nature of, you know, stringing those, you know, book and then book proposal and then keeping that flywheel spinning. Uh, You know, what was it uh, specifically that, that maybe that you needed to get away from in terms of the mechanics of, of that whole, of, of keeping that flywheel up and running?
1: Well, it absolutely is a flywheel. I think that's a, a, an excellent uh, analogy. Because you are in a constant state of, of, of moving the ball towards you know the next book and the next book. So even when you're writing or researching one book, you're publicizing the one that just came out, uh, and then your brain is, is looking forward to, to what's coming next. And that cycle can be very intense. Uh, you know, you're doing a new book every two to three years um, and you sink yourself into it. And then you come out three years later and you, you've got to sort of start afresh on a whole, on a whole new thing. And so in a way that as you described it, that flywheel became uh, an issue for me and it could be my age, right? Like I'm 51 years old. I, I think this is the time for a, a midlife crisis. So my midlife <laughs> crisis is is uh, is stepping into doing a different kind of, of of journalism. But I think the like fundamental thing is the challenge, mm-hmm. right? Like I I remember when I first started writing books and when I first wrote that first proposal, which became the book Higher. And this was like. 1999, 2000, and not knowing what I'm doing, right? And venturing into the unknown and being scared. Am I going to be able to do this? And pouring effort and love into the project to make it work, to make hire work. And, you know, after you've done that, eight or nine times, you become good at it. Like anything else I put in my 10,000 hours. Right. And I no longer had to think about it. It was work still and it was enjoyable, but it, that, that scariness, that challenge wasn't there. And that's what I was looking for. And that's what I'm finding with Workcraft life.
0: And what would you identify or who do you identify the, the, the people that you're most attracted to, to, to profile for this newsletter.
1: It's interesting. It's, it's kind of, I, I perceive it as something that will be forever evolving. So right now I'm looking for individuals sort of in my world. If, if that makes sense, I live in downtown Philadelphia. I have I, I spend a good deal of time in New York. And so I'm looking to explore the world sort of in my immediate surroundings. The, 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 the UPS guy who's the sort of my, the prince of my street knows everyone there and has keys to all their houses, knows what they're doing and when they're out of town and <laughs> knows the intimacies of their lives. Like what is Vince's, what's his craft? How, do, how does he enjoy his job? How is his job drudgery? You know, how does he bring this joy that, that, that he does to his work, um, to, to interviewing an ER doctor in Philadelphia, uh, to, you know, interviewing uh, the dry cleaner down the block or an artist. Um, so right now I'm looking at sort of the immediate surroundings, um, but I kind of see this as something that is, as I said earlier, limitless. So that let's say in midsummer I'm going to Seattle. This is a perfect opportunity to interview two or three people while I'm there. Whether it's a fishmonger, right, uh, yeah. at Pike's Place Market, or it's you know, gosh, it could, yeah. <laughs> it literally could be anything. It yeah, like a barista
0: a, too, you know. A
1: barista at uh, at a sort of Starbucks flagship, if it if it were. It could be. You know, an Amazon worker, you know, so finding in some ways, this is just an opportunity for me to talk to people and ask them questions that you normally wouldn't be able to sort of explore. And that's, that's one of the great things I think about being a journalist and being a writer is it almost offers you a permission slip uh to go into people's lives that that you normally wouldn't be able to do. And so when I go to Seattle I'll have that opportunity uh or if I'm you know visiting family down in Charleston uh similar things. Like so it's it's exciting in that respect in that I can I can constantly be doing this.
0: Yeah, and what it strikes me that these are the the kind of Character sketches that you would, that you used to find in the daily newspaper, and these great community profiles of people, and now just you know based on various analytics and just the kind of the sad state of local journalism, it you don't see these things anymore. So in a sense, you striking out as just an independent journalist who's just doing these Studs Terkel esque character sketches is such a great service to people who love stories, but also trying to unpack the the joy that people get from the the mundanity of a day job too
1: yeah absolutely like i I mean i in some ways i was inspired of course i was inspired by Studs turkle like he just you know his book working which was ages ago was sort of very groundbreaking in a way but also like present day like humans of new york like brandon stanton yeah his profiles are fantastic I want to do what he does, but for people's work, you know, yeah. I want to focus on what their craft is, what their work is. And like, that is what sort of interests me. You know, when I was just, I was just interviewing this ER doctor and it could be something as, you know, as, it was, what's the best day to go into the ER? What's the worst day to go? Why? When you see a patient who's just been shot, like what is going on in your head? How are you making decisions? Uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And I, it, I think what's exciting about this is we all experience these people in our lives, um, whether it's someone who's you know cutting your your meat at the deli or picking up your trash, uh, or or selling you your house and yet you know nothing about actually what you just touch a small sliver of their lives and what is it to know about what they do and I just think we're all gonna my effort is we all sort of understand the kind of the, the world that we're living in and the people who are inhabiting it that sounds very high-minded and ambitious but um you know there's something be said for ambition
0: Oh, 100 percent. What you're talking about, too, reminds me of a podcast I listened to a couple years ago at this point on an episode of the Happiness Project. One of their uh, podcasts was about uh, job satisfaction and they interviewed, you know, an exterminator and just a really dirty, grimy job. And he was one of the more. Had one of the more higher levels of job satisfaction, and they were like, "Why, you know, why would something someone who's working in a field that seems objectively gross be so happy with his work?" And they kind of unpacked, you know, the the fact that he was it was an act of service, and he just saw his work as as a craft, even though it was you know getting rid of rats and other pests. So I, I kind of feel the pulse of that in what you're doing too, and I think it could unlock in a lot of people just. How to be how are how are people with these everyday these everyday jobs some some sort of uh low on the skill level some very high on the skill level like ER doctor but how are they getting joy and happiness and you're kind of like sketching that I mean, like I think it could make other people feel a little bit more energy and maybe happiness and find meaning in their own lives too
1: yeah I mean i I, I imagine that some of these stories will inspire people um, I imagine some of them will make them angry. Um, I imagine that um, some of them, they'll learn things about, you know, that they may want to do themselves. I mean, it. it it's going to be pretty broad. What's not going to be broad is that every week I'm going to be providing a profile of some individual um, and delving into their work life and seeing what gets them up in the morning where they get the joy, where they get the sorrow and sort of examine their lives through their work. I mean, there's that cliche of, you know, do you live to work or do you work to live? The fact is we all work, right? Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what the motivation is. It's what you're getting out of it and and what's sort of bubbling up to the surface. And that's what I'm trying to find.
0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Listen, you've probably heard of these guys, and I have yet to try this product. But what I dig about them is that they're plant-based, which is important to me. Otherwise, this would be a non-starter. With one delicious scoop, you get 75. Wow, that's that's a lot. Right, right, Hank? Uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day Right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I'm excited to dig into the stuff because it's vegan. But if you're one of those keto bros, it's compliant and uh, all that stuff. I like paleo too. It also supports better sleep quality and recovery. So if you're an early riser, you can wake up fresher and ready to tackle your work or your workouts. Whatever you want to do. I don't know. What else is pretty rad is in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. If you want to experience Athletic Greens to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership of... Over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. How would you say the people that you've selected so far kind of reflect reflect on uh, you and your taste in the the in the maybe the things that you're most drawn to?
1: For a long time, and most of my books um, have always been. If you were to find a through line with them they're inspiring stories, right? They're stories about people overcoming odds. They're about David and Goliath kind of tales. And my instinct is to go towards those stories. Like that's where I find myself leaning in. And I think one of the challenges, and again, like I said earlier, like one of the things I'm excited about is the challenge is to not necessarily lean always in that direction of what's the inspiring um, story that's going to come out of this. Some of my work, some of my profiles are going to have exactly that. Some of these are going to be stories of David and Goliath, people, you know, finding their passion and being successful at it, you know, and some of them aren't. Um, And I want to be equally interested, and I think we all should be equally interested in you know the humanity of 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 work and not all work is joy and you know not everyone loves their work um but they do it right yeah and it's part it's a significant part of their lives and it does something for them whether it just pays the bills so they can pursue their passion be a trout fisherman or a deer hunter or whatever it is but I think we we miss, a lot, we miss out on a lot of what makes us who we are if we only talk about our family, if we only talk about our vacations, <laughs> if we only talk about our sort of, you know, our, our upbringings or all that. When the core of our lives, the most of the hours of our lives are spent working. And that's the world I want to inhabit.
0: Now, when you're curating or getting getting a sense of the people you want to interview and profile, you know, what's the process by which you go about uh, lobbying to get access to them and pitching them that you want to write about them?
1: I think it's going to be, you know, in, uh, uh, frankly, in the beginning, I'm looking at people who I know tangentially or I know through a friend. I'm not interviewing friends, but like people, again, as I said, in my surroundings, because yes, I'm an author and I've written all these books, but I've never done this. And so it's very hard to convince the locksmith down the street who you've never met before to sit down with you for two hours and tell you the story of his craft and his work. Right now, I'm sort of seeding things with these individuals within my world who I can have access to. And already it's becoming much easier. and I've only published two profiles. I have my next one's coming out uh, on on Sunday as they as they all will. And so the, the the tide of it will get easier. and my ability to to walk into, you know, a shop or call someone up on the phone, and say this is what I'm doing. Um, you can see what I've done here, and will you talk to me? And I, I think that's you know getting that level of trust is something that's just going to be gained by doing this more and more and more. Um, and the other thing that I'm finding that is super helpful um, with the people I've interviewed is you know this is not gotcha journalism, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. not here to expose anybody. Um, I'm here to tell their stories. And so I interview them. Um, so far, what it looks like is we'll have a preliminary conversation uh, on the phone. Then I'll go out and sit down with them for two or three hours and, and talk about all kinds of things. And and then maybe take some photographs, maybe watch them do some of their work. And then I go back and, and read through you know what's 30 or 40,000 words of interviewing um for just an individual and and figure out what the story is that, that that is at the heart of this person's work and it could be it could be a personal story Um, that is significant to them. For instance, my first profile was about a chef, entrepreneur, sort of surviving in COVID. And that story was less about her craft than it was about her overcoming something and and, and sort of getting through it with the help of her family. That's part of her work life. Um, Now, when I did Emilio, uh, the artist, it was a lot of craft talk. It was... How I, I was so fascinated to know how you look at a blank canvas. How do you start? Like, what's the first move? What's the second move? How do you make a mistake and correct for it? Uh, and so each story, you know, I'm, I take all that material and try to figure out, you know, what's the most important thing that, that can be said um, about this person's work or their life? Um, and that's what I'm focusing on. And then I give it to them. I'll write it up and I'll say, here it is, you know, tell me, you know, something, if you want to edit something, if we want to rewrite something, if we want to add to this, great, let's do it. Uh, and then we collect it with photographs and then that's published. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, uh, in terms of how I'm, I'm curating it, but, um, that's the process
0: so far. Oh, for sure. Because that it's, uh, you know, some people are, you know, reluctant to uh, give access and and talk. But it's also, you know, you're doing something that, you know, it does give them some degree of editorial control that you wouldn't normally do with, say, like a book or like a magazine piece. So you're like, here, I'm going to, you know, I don't like you're not like you said, you're not doing the gotcha jur- journalism, you're doing these character sketches to really celebrate people's work lives and the, the work that goes into their, into their craft. So it's, yeah, the, the body of work is going to essentially be the resume through which you can be like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. I'd like to include you in this.
1: Exactly. And, you know, and the fact is, is that I've been, you know, I was a journalist before I was an author. Uh, I know how to interview people. And then when I became an author and I was writing writing, various books about various different people and interviewing families or the subjects themselves. Like I spent a lot of time interviewing people and understanding how it is to, to get that level of trust with interview subject and getting them to relax. And a lot of, and, and and so much of it is showing how interested you are Mm. And how authentic, you, I mean, you can't, you, uh, presumably, you can fake that. But when you're authentic and you're clearly very interested in someone, they want to tell you their stories. People want to talk about their lives. Once you get them going, it's usually very hard to get them to stop. And that's a great thing, right? Because people don't ask these questions very often. And you know you go out to a to a dinner party or you meet someone in a bar and and you know you're not delving into these these you know the darknesses in the life light of someone's work life and how they do their craft like it's just not what you generally talk about um even though that's how you spend your days
0: and with a lot of your historical narratives sometimes you have the benefit of being able to interview principal figures or people tangential to them sometimes they they have since passed away and then you don't have that that access to that that direct connection um, but when you are able to forge that connection through the interviewing process you can mine it for more depth and so you know for you neil when you're doing this kind of reporting whether it be for you know your, your book work or or for the newsletter you know what is the, you know, the key to reaching that level of depth through these conversations so you can write the best possible piece?
1: That's a great question. And I, I think the first thing that I do is I, I never come with a set of questions. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'll sit before an interview and, and I'll even make a list of questions that I'm interested in asking think might promote some, um, different avenues of conversation, but then I do not look at that when I'm sitting down and talking to someone. I feel like the best way to interview someone is to have a conversation with them. If you're going down a list of questions, you're not listening to the answers. You're waiting to ask your next question. Right. Yeah. And If you're there and you're in the moment and you're authentic and you're interested and I'm super interested in these people's lives and what they do. So it comes very naturally. People will talk to you and an interview, a good interview should be this back and forth and also hearing something and saying, oh, tell me about that. And even though you, you're probably leaving behind some good stuff, right? You're leaving behind, oh, this, this train of thought that they have. But you hear this one thing and you're like, oh, I got to ask about that. Because if you don't, you're probably going to lose it. Yeah. Um, and you're going to lose that moment where it made sense to ask that question and it felt authentic in the moment. Because that's how people's brains store information, right? It's not a linear process. And an interview should not be a linear process, and I think that is that's my sort of interview technique. And I think the other interview technique, which I think is is not mine, but is probably one of the most valuable things uh, I was ever told um, when I was an early journalist, was to shut up, right? right? And to just let people talk because they most people want to fill the silence, and oftentimes they'll fill the silence with, with just gibber jabber But sometimes they'll fill that silence with a, with a truth or an admittance of something that they were maybe hesitant to say, um, but are glad to say once that's said. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when I get lost in an interview, I shut up and let the person just follow their own train of thought. And with those sort of like two ways of, of having a conversation, I find that, that with that, you can, you can generally get um, their story or you just wear them out and then they tell you what you
0: want. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think uh, Robert Caro will write in his notes, like when he was interviewing people for all his Lyndon Johnson biographies, just S-U, 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 in the margins, like, just saying, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, you know, just... Uh, and then I think uh, Bob Woodward, too, has a tactic when he's interviewing someone where he, like, presses his thumb into his ring finger to make sure he doesn't interject or to tell himself remind himself to shut up and just let sometimes let the silence ask a question like mm-hmm. and it people do is as uncomfortable it is like if we sat here for just five seconds of dead air that would seem like an eternity and you have to really build up a muscle and some endurance to let that silence do some work for you
1: I totally agree and those those anecdotes are great I mean, you know, there will be moments in an interview where, you know, nothing said for, for 10 seconds, right? Or 15 seconds. That is an eternity sitting yeah. with someone that you don't know and not saying anything. And it's very hard <laughs> uh, to do, but it's 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 essential, I think, uh, to the interview process. And I will say one other thing that is is I've noticed particularly now that I'm doing Warcraft. The technology has made things so much easier. You know, I remember when I was first, you know, interviewing people on the street for a story, um, in my twenties, where I would be frantically writing in my notebook, what people were saying, or, you know, taking shorthand, uh, and then even while writing books, you know, I'd be interviewing someone and I'd be typing it out or I'd tape it, um, and now you can be so immersed in who you're talking to because you can just record it and the technology can take a transcript for you so you're not going back to your hotel room after a three-hour interview and spending three and a half more hours yeah. um, re-listening to it, typing every word. It's made it so that... The technology has made it so that when you're in a room with somebody, you can be f- solely focused on that. There's not taking notes. There's not scratching you know all your attention is on the interview subject and that is just incredible
0: yeah and i know you and i both revere john mcphee and
1: oh we do we do yeah
0: and and he would push back on the tape recorder Thing. He is not big on voice recorders and tape recorders. It's fun, like for the same reason that I I definitely like them. The reason that you're using them too, you do feel more present, knowing that this thing is capturing everything. So you can maybe take some notes on ambient details, but you can be more engaged, it actually show some eye contact, and uh, and then, geez, your handwriting as you're trying to scribble everything. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, maybe a battery dying, but that's a, neither here nor there. Um, but McPhee does feel that it's too passive to have a recorder. Like he wants to be engaged with a notebook. And uh, you know, given your admiration for McPhee and that, I wonder like if he were to push back on that, what would you what would you say to uh you know our our hero McPhee? What would I
1: say to McPhee? Yeah. <laughs> Who's um you know, a much greater journalist <laughs> and writer than I am. <laughs> I would say you're wrong. Uh, I just don't agree with it. Yeah. Um I think that a tape recorder can disappear very quickly once you're really engaged in the conversation. Yeah. And I just don't see what the advantage is of missing a single word that someone is saying. Because I reread these transcripts after the interviews and I'll see lines in there that I didn't even pick up when we were having the conversation. It could be just a word or a nuance of how something is said um, that changes the meaning of it. And I just can't imagine writing down every single one of those words in a way while also actively being engaged with somebody. And I know that there is some, oh, that people are are more reluctant to speak when a, a tape recorder is going but again, I'm not looking to get anybody, yeah, <laughs> so people know that when they tell me something, they can tell me i don't uh, you know what, Neil, I thought about that, and I don't want to include that, and I may try to convince them otherwise, but if they tell me firmly, neil, I don't want to include that, then it doesn't come in, and I think I will get a lot more truth that way than I will um. Trying, not that I'm saying that John McPhee does this, but trying to sort of convince someone that not every word is being taken because I'm I'm just taking notes and not taping.
0: Yeah, and i I've said this before um, with somebody I can't remember who I was speaking with, but uh, it was. I, when I was reporting for six weeks, in- you've interviewed so many of us. Yeah, ex- yeah, no will like over three hundred of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Yeah, and, uh, and when I was reporting on six weeks in Saratoga, I was on the uh, backstretch with uh, Nick Zito, Hall of Fame trainer. He's just like a real, one of those classic, charismatic horse trainers who's just like everything that comes out of his mouth is just like a quotable soundbite. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I had my recorder going, and you know, I'm just talking to Nick, and but just. These other things too that a tape recorder affords you is that in the background, you know there were just like blue jays chirping out in the in the bushes. And you know when I sat down to transcribe that tape, because this was before like some uh, the AI interfaces that do a lot of the heavy lifting for you, it was just like oh that's oh that's a, that's a blue jay. I didn't even catch that that time. I was talking to Nick. I was listening to Nick, and now I'm able to put in the blue jay there, and it just it starts to the. It starts to layer flavor if we're going to use chef talk. And it's just like that little extra grace note that just makes the scene a bit more evocative. And I, w- I probably would have missed that were it not for the recorder.
1: That's a really, really great point. Yeah. I mean, th- those sort of visceral details um, that you can tape are tremendous. And so why miss them, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there could be cars going by. Like my my experience there on the back stretch, you, you know, you might hear a horse snort, or you might hear him pawing at the dirt, or you'll hear the the shank jing, uh, jiggle from uh, from a hot walker just looking to you know on the halter. And you just, all these little things, and that way, while you're just you know it, you know engaged with your subject and making eye contact and nodding along and like you know, really encouraging them to open up and and the most. I don't know, just because our our curiosity drives us, you know, you're able to just catch, capture so much more. And some people find it lazy, but I, I think I'm, we're in the same camp that why not get as much information as possible so you can discard as much as you want later.
1: Yeah. And the other great thing that, that, that I'm able to do with, um, with WorkCraft as a newsletter is that, you know, when I'm interviewing these people, I'm also taking their photos, right? Or I'm videotaping them doing their particular work. Yeah uh, and following that. And, you know, the fabulous thing is I can include some of those. I can include as many images as I want, um, into profiles. I can include video, uh, into the profiles. And so it becomes this, you know, the ambition is for it to become this very immersive experience for, for readers or listeners or watchers, depending on, on what you want to be. And again, that just, for the point of view of of a challenge and, you know, steering away from just um, book writing, this is just for me an an exciting opportunity. And, you know, my great grand, my grandfather, um, I always think in view of my kids now, uh, my grandfather was a photographer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And one of his great, claims to fame was that every week he would take a photograph of a dog Hmm. and it would be in you know the sunday issue and the photograph of the dog was an avenue to interview uh its owner right and to know about their lives, and so in in a in a funny way i'm sort of just going sort of full circle on I mean, his, the walls of his, his, yeah. uh, you know, house and his fire were full of dog photographs, right. Yeah. Of these, of these people. And again, you can, you know, I've been so limited for so long with just the, the, the written word. And like, you know, those photographs that he would take tell their own story and, you know, being able to do that in the, in the newsletter with these people's work and craft, um, is is tremendous um and for instance i'm just doing a profile on a first-time war reporter
0: classic cnf pod aside this profile on the first-time war correspondent depending on when you listen to this episode uh, it's it's dropping on friday june 3rd this profile of the war correspondent goes live uh, this coming Sunday, June 5th. Just so you know, I plugged it at the top of the show, but I just want to reiterate right now. Sound good? All right. Back to Neil.
1: And for the Wall Street Journal, who went to the Ukraine, and, you know, I I can talk about what he's, I can interview him about what he saw. I can describe, you know, the cars crushed like, uh, soda cans, but when you see some of those stark images and video that, that he took during his time there, it just brings, as you say, another layer to the story uh, that the written word just can't always capture. Um, and so it's just this whole world um, that this, Newsletter, which seems like a sort of dull term Mm -hmm. (laughs) on its surface. Uh, But given where we are in in terms of, of technology, it becomes this sort of very dynamic platform.
0: An immersive multimedia universe.
1: Yeah. I don't want to go too overboard. You're not going to be – this is not a Disney movie. Um, it's mostly words, um, but it but it definitely has these uh, hints of other things. Yeah,
0: the Neil Bascom cinematic universe.
1: That's right. Neil's Marvel universe of people's work craft. I, I love – You know, CGI. Mm-hmm. I, I'm doing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still trying to figure out Photoshop, so you know that, I think uh, CGI is a long way away.
0: <laughs> There's a I love one of uh, the quotes from the Jezebel piece where um, I, I'm blanking on her on her name. Is is Jezebel the the central cook or is that just the name of her restaurant? I'm blanking on her.
1: She that's her first. That's name, her first name. Okay, and that that's also the name of her
0: uh, restaurant. Okay, great. Yeah, so Jezebel, she said, uh, yeah, everybody in my my house, we we all cook. We all have our own style. You know, from my mom, I learned how to make pasta. We're extremely connected to food. Um, and I'm someone who loves a good uh, a good cooking show. And all the judges, they're always telling you, you know, we need to see more of you on, on this plate. And style is is always forefront in cooking. And, and uh, we can really extrapolate that to writing in terms of style and voice and finding your voice. So in terms of maybe your own writing, whether it be your book writing or certainly with the newsletter, you know, how have you sought to develop your own style and voice through, you know, trial and error. And then, you know, something that becomes wholly, wholly you through the sheer reputation you've done over the years.
1: I, I think the style, you know, I've always thought that the story dictates the style.
0: Mm, yeah. And
1: so I'll give you an example that I've given in the past. And that is, you know, Perfect Mile, which was my book about Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. There are moments in that story where he's training and, and he's going through these just grueling regimes that, see, that are endless. And the sentences that I write mimic that in a way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They sort of tread the same sort of, gruel, you know, they're, they're long, they're multi-part. I, I want people, readers, to sort of almost sluggishly have to go through it. Very different from Winter Fortress, my book about the sabotage of the atomic bomb program. And you have these sort of Norwegian spies going in to bomb this plant on the edge of a precipice. And the language there is very staccato sentences are short they're stripped down not a whole lot of adverbs not a whole lot of adjectives it is action uh, because the story is about action and movement and and quick 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 and so i think it's going to be similar with these profiles that the the style this their stories are going to dictate the style and that seems sort of highfalutin in In a way, um, but I think one of the things you get from writing writing for so long, um, hopefully, is the confidence to break the rules and the confidence to not always be grammatical or, you know, noun, verb, you know, uh, clause, period, and to play with with sentences and play with their structure and their length and their shortness. And so I think I'm going to be bringing that similarly, um, to these profiles. I just started writing the war reporter story. And that, again, it feels very, uh, already very staccato because he's dealing with these frontline battle situations and these sort of gruesome moments, terrifying moments. And to be in his shoes, I'm trying to write it in a way of, okay, Brett, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Um, you know, how, and he talks about it in a way of like, you know, the classic time slowing down. Um, and so the style of, of his dialogue and his recollections are conveyed that way.
0: And, uh- in uh in the very first uh installment of uh, of your newsletter you talk about how you go about the work of your research and uh, and everything and you call it uh you know uh, looking into your uh, your kind of obsessive crazy uh, and uh how how right. would you describe your obsessive crazy
1: how would i describe my obsessive? it's it's no different than my sort of uh interpersonal crazy <laughs> <laughs> um but you know I get obsessed with with things and um, go down the rabbit hole with them and and time disappears and you know kind of like my profile of Emil- Emilio like when I'm really into it, I've escaped the world, and I am in in living in that moment um. And sort of everything else d- disappears. And what I'm, you know, I brought that sort of obsessive level of things to my books and to my research and to sort of trying to uncover every little detail so that I could just pepper the next sentence with something that, that you know, whether it was like 78 degrees in the room where the paint was peeling off the walls you know, being able to know that level of, of detail to make the story come alive. And I think my poor interview subjects for work craft is, is very similar, right? So I'm like an hour three of these interviews and these people's eyes are like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I got into, I knew what I was getting into. Um, but I'm asking those questions because, and I'm going into that, those, you know, small little lanes because you know, that's where something comes to life, in my opinion. And so even though it may cost a little for the interviewer and for time and a level of obsessiveness, I think the value that you get out of that um, will hopefully come through.
0: Yeah, and you're dogmatic about the research and how you you organize it and then rereading it and, you know, coming up with the right degree of, You know, the structure, where to where to put the information You use Excel spreadsheet, which I think is great because it's it's by its very nature organized. But you can it's searchable, too, which I imagine is something that you find very valuable when you've got a big, sprawling document. Um, But uh, but point being, like after a while, you know, you write that it's very important to put it away and then to go away. So why is it so important for you to after you've done all that labor to kind of get away from it for a bit?
1: Because I think your mind does amazing things um, that, you, that we have absolutely no idea about. I think that you know, connections are made in ways when you're not actively thinking about something that if you were to, to you know, just obsess over it and try to figure out an answer, you'll, you'd never figure one out. Um, and I think just going away it gives your brain time to do that. And what I love about these sort of shorter profiles versus the larger book is you know with a large with a book I will have you know I mean I'll have hundreds of books, hundreds of hours of interviews, streams of newspaper and magazine articles. There's no way in the world my brain can some brains probably can do it, but mine certainly can't it's just sort of absorb all that information, hold it and figure it out yeah. But with these interviews, like I'll have I'll cut those the words down to 20,000 words and then I can read that. And that's all in my head. Right. And then I can go away and it all sort of coalesces. Uh, And so I think that to me is is also exciting. Um, I think the other thing is I was just reading this article about um, creativity and walking mm. and how, you know, it could be a writer, it could be a mathematician, it could be a painter um, where ideas and solutions come through the very act of walking. And I think that is a similar situation as, as you know, as I quote, uh, you know, go away.
0: Yeah, and to kind of bring it full circle, it would it would appear that the newsletter also is a is a sense of getting away from the book work, which we talked about earlier. And it must be, you know, fun, fun and energizing just to do it unto itself. But it, in a sense, it's like, oh, here's a way that I can still kind of flex the muscle of the journalistic and writing skill that you've had over the years, but also get away from the from the the machine of book writing, which was, you know, as we already established it, you know, a bit of a drain, you know, after your latest book.
1: Yeah. And you know what, it's just, it's fun to explore and do something new. And I'm just, I can't, (laughs) I mean, I I bore my wife with this, but like I'm so excited about this (laughs) and uh, in a way that, that is, that, that makes me, me feel, you know, not that I'm old, but it makes me feel like I did when I first started writing books. And, you know, it's still telling people's stories. Everyone's, everyone's story is extraordinary in its own way, whether I'm writing about them in a profile for this newsletter or for a whole book. And the joy or the greatness that is with the newsletter is I can do a lot, so much more of them. Um, And I'm actually talking, you know, I've done a lot of historical books. So I've, I've, I've written a lot of stories about dead people, right? (laughs) To put it it coarsely. Uh, And it's really nice to sit across from someone and interview them. You, and you just get just remarkable stuff that you would have, you, you, you never expect. Um, Maybe you can find that similar kind of thing in archival work or diary work, but it's just a, it's a totally different
0: thing. Well, And you have 100% agency and control over it too. You don't have to worry about, I don't know, market forces or uh, stuff of that nature. You're like, I'm just going to follow my taste and my curiosity and that's all that matters.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And that's, you know, um, that also is scary, right? Because there's no you know it's me right no one to blame I'm, yeah <laughs> I, there's no one to you know i can't blame my publisher for not to, or the marketing department or the publicity department like i'm doing everything here you know i'm i'm interviewing i'm writing i'm marketing i'm i'm publicizing and it's fun so and i'm passionate about this subject matter and i think that the greatest work comes out of you know passion Uh, And so that's very similar to Amelia. We had the same conversation, like, who cares if it works? The fact is, you're doing something you want to do, you're exploring something you want to explore. And just do that.
0: Oh, I love it. Well, uh, well, Neil, as I like to bring these conversations down for uh, a landing uh, late the in, late in these conversations, I, I love to ask ask the guests for a recommendation for the listeners of some kind. And that can like I said, that can be anything from uh, a brand of coffee to uh, kind of a pair of socks or an app. Anything's game. So uh, what might you recommend for the listeners out there?
1: I, you know, I'm staring out at my, my city of brotherly love here out of my window. And I think one thing I'd say is visit Philly. It's a fabulous
0: town. Oh yeah. Well, speaking of Philly, uh, whenever we are back visiting family in South Jersey and we're able to kick over to Philly, uh, we like to go to the, the, the restaurant Veg. It is an incredible high-end vegan restaurant. If there are any of you vegans out there, uh, Incredible stuff in the Moshava food truck. It's a Israeli food, and a, a friend of ours. His son is one of the owners of it, and uh, yeah, they are accommodating to the vegetarians and vegans out there. But if you if you're into that kind of food, oh my god, you got to go.
1: Um, and you did give me a little prompt, and I have to say, I have become an absolute obsessive fan of Bombas socks. All right. They're the best socks I've ever worn. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I was wearing them and someone came over to the house and he was wearing the same exact socks and he's like these are the best socks ever. <laughs> And so, you know, a good pair of socks goes a long way.
0: Oh, I love it. Well, 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 Neil, it's uh, yeah, it so, so great to touch base with you again after uh, about two years. It's been about two years since, two we, years. since we last spoke. So uh, I'm glad we were able to do this again to talk about, you know, work craft life uh, over at Substack. So .substack.com is where you can find that and subscribe to that. So as always, like, thanks so much for the time, Neil, and thanks for the work you're doing. It's, uh, it's really exciting and a ton of fun to read. So I wish you the best of luck with it, man.
1: Thank you. It's always fun.
0: Very nice of Neil to come back on the show so we can celebrate his newsletter. Workcraftlife.substack.com to subscribe. Awesome. It was great talking to him. It was uh, two years. Can you believe it? A little over two years since he was on for faster. Yeah, I like, uh, I like talking, to, talking to Neil. That was fun. Keep the conversation going on Twitter at cnfpod or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram, and please consider Patreon or leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so I promised a little bit of newsletter advice, and take it with however many grains of salt you want. I'm no expert. I don't have a four figure audience, let alone a five or a seven or a six or a seven figure newsletter audience. Upper threes, upper three digits. That's what I have. Take this advice and uh, you can tell me to shove it or you can put it, into, put, it, put it to good use. Here we go. Number one, newsletters are permission-based. So resist, resist, resist the urge to add people's emails from your own address book who you've corresponded with in the past onto your newsletter list to give yourself that little bump in subscriber numbers. I can't tell you how many authors have done this to me because we've had a few back and forths. Like, If I know you have a newsletter, I'm probably going to subscribe to it because I know how important it is to have that number go up, especially for the, the middling uh, or upstart writer who really needs every every subscriber is like this beautiful little flower that you just have to nurture and please don't die. Don't be like the basil on my shelf that just keeps on dying. Damn you, basil. I, I don't unsubscribe from these lists that I get put on without my permission because I know from personal experience how demoralizing it is to lose a subscriber. It is a gut punch. I can't help but look at the reasons. Usually, thankfully, most people say none given, but sometimes like no longer interested. And I look and... All the things that, all the analytics. I'm like, God damn it. And some people are like, I didn't sign up for this. And I'm like, that's fucking bullshit because I don't do that shit. See rule number one. I think maybe they're just selecting something. And sometimes I'll write back to them. Like, listen, I don't care that you left, but I don't want to, I don't want to be dragged through that mud. Anyway, this is, (laughs) wow. Maybe this is the only rule. This is a a big no-no because I, I didn't give you permission to put my email on your list. I didn't hand my information over to you to do this. You may ask me, but please don't do it without anybody's permission. That's rule number one. Oh, boy. I I went off script there for a little bit. Yeah, there's a script. I'm reading a script right now. Two. That wasn't on the script. Two. It's got to have a ton of value for your subscribers. Like, we're hit with so much spam, so much email, social media. It goes on and on. I mean, think about it. For what I bombard you with. I bombard you with uh, podcasts about once a week. I say about because sometimes it's more than once a week. So you get that. And then it's the social media stuff. And then I ask you about Patreon. And then I'm like, go subscribe to the newsletter. It's like, holy shit. So... Anyway, your news newsletter can't be the, the everyday ramblings of a disgruntled so-and-so. It can't just be a, a glorified blog post. Unless you're so damn funny that it doesn't matter. I guess like if David Sedaris did something like that, he's got the audience and people find him so damn funny that maybe they would like that. My guess is you're not. Think about uh, George Saunders' newsletter, too. It's just like so focused on making you a better reader and and by extension, a better writer, like tons of value there. And you're learning from a master. I don't know if Substack, Substack likely drove a dump truck full of money to his house, but George is making it work. I dig it. It's a lot of emails, so, but, so it can be hard to keep up with, but I do appreciate it. Uh, well, anyway, w- so let's just think of with my newsletter, for instance. I tend to write a very short intro essay most times. And give 11 cool things that will entertain you or make you a better writer. Or maybe you'll get a book recommendation that you've never heard of. Brad Listies is very good in this. His is very short. It's very, uh, it's very just very short. I, I imagine if you're looking at it on your phone, it's just a real quick list with cool links to stuff. So we have similar ones. And it's, uh his, I think it's nine things. I like to, 11, up to 11, you know me. Right? Metal. Uh. So in any case, uh, I like to include a happy hour link, too. That's pretty neat. I mean, I have a, like a little crew of people who go to the happy hour. Since most of them are on the Patreon list anyway, I might kick that over to Patreon to sweeten the Patreon pot. Uh, as a result, someone who's not on Patreon would be grandfathered in. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, uh, anyway, number three, uh, pick a pick a schedule and stick to it. If you can swing weekly... Great. Austin Cleon can do it every single week, but he doesn't have a classic day job and a lot of a lot of other stuff. You know, he's all right. He's doing okay for himself. But weekly, that's a lot of effort. I settled on monthly a few years ago. Been doing this thing for years. Less pressure and also just less email for people. If they start seeing you too often, I'm like, oh my god, I can't keep up with this. And so anyway, it doesn't matter. It could be one week. Two weeks, one month, stick to one schedule. Lastly, four, number four, have fun. I'm gonna start one soon that's totally not that's unrelated to anything that I do, and this is like gonna be a fun one, just for just for shits and giggles, for all the shits and all the giggles. It'll be called Fade to Blackout, and it'll be blackout poems. From Metallica lyrics, so I'm going to take a Metallica song, say "Fade to Black," and then just black out things and just maybe change the entire meaning of the song. Maybe pick out the words that are by their very nature kind of sunny lyrics and turn a "Fade to Black" song about suicide into something that might be uh, something that might be the opposite of it. I don't know. And I'll put a photograph of this blackout poem into the newsletter interface, and that'll go out to people. Does it have anything to do with my core writing life? No. But it could be fun. I'm doing blackout poems anyway. And if I can entertain people with a little bit of art, then I'm happy. And it's kind of nourishing to do it anyway. So there you go. Don't add people without permission. Ton Add value. Pick a schedule and stick to it. And have fun. Oh, and one more thing. If you can't do interview. See ya.